Systeria is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. If you like Systeria, why not check out The Rereaders, a fortnightly literary and cultural podcast at www.therereaders.com. Oh, maybe I'll start again because I just said Systeria. <laughs> oh my god, that's all. I'm a great, oh my god. <laughs> I've got boob problems. Can, do you mind if I just move this back just a little bit? They're not problems. Let me tell you that. They are definitely not problems. Stereo, where we focus on women's experiences as creators and consumers of arts and culture. I'm Steph Van Schild. I'm Renny Sullivan. Uh, and we'll be chatting today with Amy Gray about motherhood, memoir, being a writer, and the politicization of women's bodies. We'll also be commiserating the recent US election results and thinking about what we can do as females to help institute change a little closer to home. How, how fucking disappointing. Yeah, but is it surprising? <laughs> yeah, this is the thing, right? Like, People are saying no one turned out, but I read something this morning that said it was actually like record breaking numbers turned out. Mm. No, that's bollocks. Really? That's bollocks. Absolute bollocks. Okay. Um, You're much know. more in a, like an aficionado on this stuff than well, I am. Well, no, I'm a, f- I'm a freelance writer, which means that I can pretend I'm an expert on a dime <laughs> by jumping into stats. Um, so, yeah, when a lot of this conversation started coming up and the exit polls and things like that, the let's take it from um, a couple of base areas first Um, at the moment you've only got just over 50% of eligible voters turning up Mm, to vote so that's your first one your second fact is that the Republicans only ever need to get they have consistent voters who turn out at every election and they pretty much hover over the past four elections, if you look at the figures, they only ever have to get about 58 to 60 uh, million votes. That's it. Um, if they So then it's actually for the Democrats to win or lose. So in a case like um, Obama, he got 65 to 69 million votes. The Republicans were around about 59. So, you know, he was able to win, you know, those times. This time... You know, Hillary and Trump were pretty much neck and neck. They're mm. about 59, 58 million votes apiece. So actually, the normal amount of people came out, well, the normal figure of people came out to vote. What happened was the Democrats didn't get enough new people to come out and beat that Republican cap. Right. Now, you know, in addition to that, you've got some other little factoids that are you know very interesting and go into the race and gender breakdown. Um, heaps of you know Black Americans um, and Hispanics came out to vote Democrat, um, and that was fantastic. But the white vote, um, like the consistent voting white vote, did not change at all. The same amount of white women who have always statistically have always favoured the Republican vote came out and favoured the Republican vote 
where were those extra women? Now, part of that is, you know, you can think about apathy in a voluntary, um, you know, election system. You can also think about race as an issue there. You can also think about the fact that, um, I think it was January or February, the Washington Post did a, re- uh, did a, like a statistical research into feminism. And you're looking at about, of the people that they surveyed, only like about 45% didn't think they were feminist at all. Now, of that, you know, you'd sort of think, well, but still 60. Of that 60%, you've got about 20, 17 to 20% who actually considered themselves a strong feminist. Now, what we can infer from that is that actually they're well-read feminists. They're committed, they're Mm -hmm. engaged, they're active. Um, So that then actually tips down that engagement level even further. And then the really scary thing, the majority of women who were surveyed would not think to vote for someone based on women's rights. Like, that would not come into their mindset whatsoever. So some epic douche lord saying, (laughs) grab them by the pussy, Mm. they're not, you know, for some reason that did not bring out white women. So a lot of that, I think, is internalised misogyny. Um, But I also think, you know, we still have these other intersections of Mm. people trying to hoard their privilege um, and other people not taking um, the rights of others as important. And we should probably introduce you formally. So Amy Gray, writer, as you were saying, freelance writer, feminist, activist, and I would say, and I think Ronnie would agree, and many others, all-round awesome person. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Put it on your business card. (laughs) Uh, Her cultural criticism and personal essays have featured in The Guardian, The Age, The Lifted Brow, amongst countless others. Uh, Amy's also the mother of a rather spectacular small person who, and this is a quote from Amy's website, is getting real tired of Amy's shit. So She really is. <laughs> we thought we'd talk a little <laughs> bit about how motherhood kind of influences and impacts on your your life as like a writer, a freelance writer. Obviously, it's a, it's a weird realm. I was actually talking with my partner the other night and he was at dinner with um, French people who came to his family dinner. I don't, I don't understand either, but he's like, the French don't understand what freelancing is. It's like, no. they're like, oh, but don't you just get a job and then <laughs> Friendly, it was that simple. retire? Yeah, and it's like, oh, no, freelancing, I kind of pick up different jobs as they come along. And they were just perplexed. And I don't think it was just like a lost in translation English to no, French well, well, thing. Like, they literally didn't understand. You could, you know, heavy socialist leaning, strong union force, all that sort of thing. No, they're not going to understand that whatsoever. So bless them. And actually, I'm just trying to think if I've got an... Um, no, none of my friends. I've, I, no, I know a continuity girl um, who works in movies and she, that she's kind of essentially freelance. In France? Yeah. Yeah, mm. and that's it. That's One person. It. One person. How are those stats? Yeah, that's always great. But So being a mum freelancing, obviously I find it hard to make a cross freelancing. Um, Ronnie, you've got a full-time job, part-time job? Part-time. Part-time yeah. job. Mm. Um, being a mum adds an extra element of obviously economic... pressure Mm. as well as the social kind of bits and pieces that come along with it how does it impact and influence your writing um well i mean like it's 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 a real balance because first off writing and feminism and activism would not have happened if not for aurora aurora is your daughter yes aurora is my daughter how old's roars roars is 12 years old 12 years going on 65 yeah (laughs) about that about to write a really tired weary letter to the green guide um so you (laughs) know um she when she came about i realized that i was wasting 
every second of my life. I was out in the suburbs. I was married to a guy who was very sweet, but I just wasn't into it um, anymore. I was not hanging out with the people I wanted to hang out with. I was not doing the work that I wanted to do. I was not making any kind of contribution to the world that I wanted to do. And there's these beautiful pair of blue eyes just watching me. And it's like, oh, fuck. If you're going to watch me for the rest of my life, I've got to make sure I do something worth watching. And so, like, within two years of her being born, I switched into publishing um, and then into photography and I started travelling the world. Actually, you know, like, I would go around the world often without her um, and then come back because, to me, that independence was a cornerstone of it. Yeah, which is quite interesting. A a lot of people might come along and say, well, that's not the version of motherhood that I understand. They might think being at home in the suburbs with your child and rearing him in that way is the right way, but that wasn't the right way for you, was it? Well, I think it's it's comes down to your concept of caregiving. And mm-hmm. so caregiving is the immediate needs, which is fine. Got that covered. But if it's going to move beyond that, it has to go past servitude and into, if you're watching me, I'm going to make sure I'm worth watching. So I'm going out, I'm doing the things that I want because I want you to go out there and do the things that you want. I'm still spending the majority of my time with you. You still get all of my attention, but you also know that I'm a complete person with interests outside of you. I mean, we have these children who don't, who can't conceptualise that their parents are individuals outside of these parental roles. And I think to a degree that that can actually be rather traumatic. So, you know, yeah, she knows that I have a whole world out there that isn't actually revolving around her. And I've raised her to understand that the world does not revolve around her either, while still celebrating her for being, you know, fucking majestic <laughs> but so you know yeah the writing came about because of her and um and she's a huge fan of it but um you know yeah economically it's not always um easy and thankfully she's got enough kind of perspective awareness to not actually want for much she's never been a toys kid her idea of fun was that we could like in good times we can go out every week and buy a book um, and that's glorious. Um, so, yeah, she's never been one to be head up on consumerism or capitalism, but she knows that she can't always get everything or we don't have everything that she will always want. And that's just about talking about that with her. It's like, well, because I made this choice and I've made this choice because I think it'll be good for both of us, but mainly for me, and I'm going to own that. Are you okay with that? And so the times when I can't cope are the times where I utilise my vast privilege because I may be poor, but I've got that middle-class privilege of education and outlook and experience. Um, And I've got friends who have money, so I don't have to um, rely on the welfare network. So I'll borrow from friends and then I pay them back. Or, you know, friends will do you a solid in some way or another. So we muddle our way through. It's and she's okay with it. And actually, I feel quite happy that she doesn't expect money. She doesn't actually factor that into something that you need. I mean, like, she's as shocked as I am when we meet people who own cars. But <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting because I guess, you know, we can we adapt to any situation and, you know, you can have people living in huge wealth who that becomes the norm. And then, of course, there's other end of the spectrum and, and it's about adapting and, and you know, 
enjoying your life in whatever shape it takes and that's something that um, I think adults come to terms with often more easily but children particularly if they're raised in certain ways they expect things to be you know always to be easy for them and it's yeah, yeah it's a lesson that, that comes at some point for everybody and look the mold isn't you know completely cast yet yeah, you know she's about to go through her teen years where alignment and inclusion becomes even more important and maybe status mm. becomes a far more fluid thing she may, you know, turn around and change. She may become one of those adults who hoards because they were raised up poor. Not that I like that at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, you know, so, yeah, it, I don't know which way she's going to turn out, but right now it's good. Yeah. She's pretty bloody excellent, I must say, and that's props to you, obviously. And also, like, I guess you've got the support network of her father and that's their flexibility as well. But yeah. you are very much a single mother. Yeah. As that needs to be factored in and acknowledged. Look, I think that that's a really interesting point. We um, we broke up before she turned two, mm-hmm. um, and at that time he said to me, um, I'm going to go for full contact. I'm going to go full custody. You'll never get it. And I was like... <laughs> I would have to have so much going on in my life for that to happen and even then I'd still get access. Um, you know, don't be a dickhead, I'm offering you 50-50, no payments, and we've kept that up for the past, like, 10 years or so. Um, and there's been a lot of turning the other cheek to try and make that a uh, an equal and positive relationship for her to see. And that's important because she needs... So important. And, you know, kids also need to see parents actually sublimate you know or sort of set aside their egos in ways other than servitude to the child so and so I think that 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 helps but yeah no look I mean it's I was someone was asking me about this the other day about being a single parent and it's been interesting because I don't have a lot of friends who are parents and I think over the past like 12 years completely I've had maybe six occasions where friends have looked after Aurora. So it has just been me. It has been those glorious times where um, you're working about 20 hours a day and you get four hours of sleep and you've got to get them to childcare and back again and cleaned and all that sort of stuff. And and also you're throwing up in the toilet and they're running around mimicking your vomiting sound. <laughs> and you've got to just get the fuck on with it. Yeah. Because they don't care. And actually that's kind of refreshing. So, yeah, she both obviously cares and doesn't care at times, but <laughs> yeah. that's because that's, you know, childhood. Yeah, right? no, there's something fantastically normalising about that. You can't be high maintenance around a kid. Mm. I wanted to... Uh, no, go. Oh, I was just say, uh, like, a lot of people... Um, I've heard a lot of women say that um, becoming a mother is the thing that brought them to feminism or deepened mm. their feminism or really impacted it in some way. Um and obviously your writing is very closely bound up with your feminism and I'm wondering whether or how your motherhood, um, whether you can kind of identify the through lines of how that impacts your writing or your perspectives or the things that you're drawn to. Is it really bound up and can you see those kind of lines connecting it? I, yeah, look, I mean, so I was one of those late teens who was like, oh, feminism's achieved everything. (laughs) They're just complaining then, <laughs> um, which is really embarrassing. But um, no, but, but I think it's also that's really important 
to say yeah. and mm. it's that kind of internalised misogynism that you can still expand and grow out of at any stage in life. I'm still I'm still dismantling the internalised you know, misogyny and it's still going to be a journey and I think this is a really important thing too. No one emerges perfectly fully formed on the half shell as a complete goddess of political and activist mm. expression and history. Never gonna I really happen. just want to say turtle power because you said half shell, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Not to bring it down. But. I was thinking of Aphrodite, but anyway. <laughs> um, but so I, um, it's I knew that I was independent and quote unquote mouthy, but I didn't realise that I was actually being political. I just never realised that I was meant to step back to a degree. And then when it a lot of it started to happen when I was pregnant and people were putting their expectations on mm. me, it's like, no, 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 fuck off. Um, and second point, fuck off. <laughs> and, but just to sum it up, fuck off. Um, <laughs> and so in my work, a lot of it was this um, confusion that these concepts weren't actually well known. And so, and, and it's really interesting because the, the process of an activist developing awareness is similar to the process of a writer developing their body of work. It's gradual. Mm. It's, you know, a lot of it is lived experience, a lot of it is reading, and a lot of it is just actually getting those initial reactions out of their system. Um, and so I spent then um, a couple of years really focusing on writing about parenting because it annoys me so much that parenting is not actually given um, enough focus, especially in feminist discussion. Yeah, it's like, Amy, there's mommy blogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hated mommy. Well, mommy blogs so much are just, you know, cultural reinforcers and capitalist reinforcers as well. So, you know, it's like, look at my new baking dish, look at my new pastel coloured bakeware, look at. Sponsored by Kmart. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at my pink clothes for my girl and yeah. my blue clothes for my boy. This is a sponsored post by Aldi, things like that. So, you know, yeah, I wasn't into that. And so, and I wanted to talk about the, you know, the visceral kind of defiance of being a parent, not from um, a standpoint where I'm saying, hey guys, I'm still young and with it because, you know, I say fuck a lot. It's the case of, I am who I am. Motherhood is a part of me. Motherhood is not the entire shroud, mm. though, that you want it to be. And so that's really dominated the work. And from that has come feminism because they're so intertwined. And unfortunately, we're in this position where younger feminists only really care about feminism, uh, care about mothering once they become a mother. And that, to me, is quite annoying because there's a whole world of very vital, basic things that are happening in the home, in the woman's body, that doesn't get discussed. Mm, mm. Um, I helped run the recent Feminist Writers Festival uh, mm. and some of the feedback that we got, which was from younger women who attended, was too much of a focus on mothering and motherhood. Well, this is the thing. I mean, like, and I think that this is another challenge um, for feminism. When you look at the majority of feminist work that gets pumped out, a lot of it is from young people. Mm. And so why is that? Well, that's because often younger people have the means, whether it's from living off their parents or crowding in shared houses or things like that, to live off a freelance wage. So therefore, what they're then going to send out to the media is a representation of a young person's issue. Now, if that's all you're reading, that's all you think that happens. And then it's like, well, why the fuck am I looking at all these old bitches? Well, you're being fucking ageist. Mm. And you need to actually unpack that in yourself. 
And I think that that's a real challenge for yeah. um, feminism today. Well, you work with a lot of young people, though, as well. Um, yeah. And that ties into, I guess, talking about the piecemeal way that you earn an income. So it's not purely through writing no. uh, cultural criticism or commentary or essays. Yeah. It's not as glamorous as people might imagine. Um <laughs> You do a bunch of other things. Do you want to talk a little bit about the other work that you do? So, yeah, no, look, when you are a freelancer, it also means that you do a whole patchwork of work in order to get the rent covered, So, um, which also makes it really hard when you try and talk to accountants. Um, I do mentoring of young female writers, um, and that's one of my favourite things, I've got to say. You're amazing at it. I've been to a, a session that you've you've done oh with the particular do you want to talk a little bit yeah about well it's the a, yeah it's it's um Daniel council is one of the most progressive and amazing councils that i've come across here in melbourne who have really amazing programs for engaging the youth um both politically artistically all that sort of thing so they've got like there's one group there called jets and that's to get them involved in making music and getting exposure to studios and things like that um the other thing is there's a writing group there and so bhakti actually um introduced me to that group and got me involved and so we sit down and i teach them aspects of different writing i introduce them to um different writers throughout the year so i've brought steph along to talk about editing um we've had ben law sitting in a freaking street gutter skyping with us um, we've had Clem over and all that sort of That's stuff. That's Clem Ford? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we just sit there and we, we talk about writing or we'll talk about a genre or a format or some different aspect of writing. Because, like, the other thing is, too, there's a lot of crossover for them with their love of writing, but also with their assignments and things like that. And so what I'm trying to get them to do is less about the actual written expression but to get to the thinking because that's the main motor of all writing. Um, and so then we have this really wonderful writer's table and we go through everyone's work and everyone gets feedback, you know, and you get to notice where certain people have issues, um, someone's too dense with a sentence or things like that. That's my that's always my great big thing. Um, and, and everyone works together on getting this stuff out and then publishing it on their blog. They have, like, printed material, things like that. So they do, they do so much wonderful work. And then I'll do, like, with them and with other groups as well, I'll do youth engagement councils, which is where you get a bunch of teens together from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and you talk about the issues that are affecting them. You talk about sexuality, you talk about feminism, you talk about the environment, everything that they want to see in their world corrected and help guide them to either learning how to get involved or learning how to advocate for change and so what I really love is actually giving them skills so that they can then make change rather than just say well why isn't everything the way I want it it's like okay now I'm going to make it the way I want it Mm. that's so amazing I mean I'm just thinking about myself as a teenager and I had so little awareness of what was happening with anyone who didn't go to my school or wasn't related to me. I just had no kind of concept of that there were things that you could access in our communities or in Melbourne or, mm-hmm. you know, in your city that could give pathways towards this creative expression or, you know, political expression. Mm. And to have someone come in and, and share that would have just been, like, a complete game changer. Well, but the other thing is, too, like, when you think about or well, when I think about my teenage years, it's the hallmark is being helpless and having no control. Mm. 
And so then they learn that they can actually have an impact. They can change things. And they can do it in a way where they're not manipulated by political agendas or things like that as well. And that's another big thing. I like to, you know, as much as I will squawk my point of view, I'm, I do try and be politically agnostic because I want them to get their way I want them to go on that journey themselves. Mm. Yeah, well, that's about the skill set that you're saying that you're trying to offer them. Yeah. It's like an avenue into what they can get into. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, and like, it's making This is it, how you do it. Yeah, and it's making it equal access as Not well. Not what you do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I do a lot of that. And then, like, you know, the usual lot of a writer, um, I will, on the side, I do copywriting occasionally. Um, and because I had like 10 years in IT before I went into writing, I specialised in this really kind of weird little format known as microcopy, which is where you basically have to get a whole bunch of information across in like two sentences. Oh, that sounds awful. I know. <laughs> oh, no, it's easy. I love it. Well, it's easy because you've done it for how long? Like 15 years. Yeah. Um, that sounds awful to me. You'd but, be like, your sentences are too dense. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you do a lot of copywriting. I do a lot of work with the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. And I've got to say, I mean, I think we've been mutual lifesavers for one another. Vivia Hickman is one of the most beautiful you know, an inspiring feminist to me and such a collaborator with such a beautiful sense mm. of community and art. And, you know, she's saved my bacon. Well, I'd actually recommend, if anyone's listening to this and interested in, in what you do, the Queen Vic Writer Centre... Um, Women's Centre. Women's Centre, yeah. sorry. I do that all the time. Uh, has a newsletter that you that you edit and put together and it can be dropped into your inbox how is it monthly or yeah weekly? so there's a monthly newsletter and we get really great writers mm. for that and so that's always really good and one of the great things about that is making sure that it is inclusive beyond mere representation and so it's looking at the different issues that aren't necessarily getting the attention of daily life or rendezvous or whatever it is it's what are these issues affecting women? Who are these women going out there doing amazing stuff for women? And, you know, what am I ranting about any particular day? Um, <laughs> and then um, I also do their social media for them as well, which is huge fun. And at the moment, I'm trying to restrain myself from mentioning Iceland too much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I love that, the Queen Vic um, Women's Centre newsletter because I, I find that you have a lot of focus on, like, economic issues. Yes. And that is something that I don't see in those, you know, mainstream um, feminist publications coming through in the same way in this really practical, yeah. engaging, um, yeah. But again, it's about skills. Mm, mm. It's about giving, trying to give people skills and trying to get access to that. And I think that that's where, somewhere where Vivia and I really do um, have affinity for one another. Mm. Well, I think we'll move on to our second segment now, um, Broad's Crit, which is where we talk, uh, you take your acumen, your critical acumen, or acu-women, <laughs> sorry, uh, to look at something that's both specific and expansive. So what we wanted to talk to you about was something that we actually haven't touched on yet, but it's definitely related. Uh, part of your personal, or your writing is very personal. Mm. Um, you do write a lot about motherhood, but you also write a lot about sex. And I think kind of you say you do social media but you also have quite a prolific online presence and you've written a lot about kind of sexting and selfies um you wrote about naked selfies for sbs it was yeah. quite an amazing article did you want to talk a little bit about how women's bodies are politicized in culture how we can kind of maybe change that or what you're trying to do with your writing 
in relation to that? Um, I think that it's... I, I feel... I'm one of those people who sees politics in everything. Um, and so, you know, there is a very political edge into what I share online. And part of that is um, so often when women post selfies, it gets, de- you know, degraded as, oh, she's just cravenly wanting attention. A man would never do that. Oh, bullshit, they do. <laughs> um, and it happens. And there's actually there's a fantastic account on Twitter who will find um, some guy kvetching about women's selfies and then she pairs a screen cap of that wine with a picture of the guy shirtless. Men post selfies, women post selfies. Why is there a reaction against women posting selfies, whether they're sexualized or not? Um, and often I find that this comes back to this kind of 4chan culture, which is men don't want to know women exist as real complete people who can broadcast. They want them as props that they can throw out as a meme or as a sexualized object, but it's for their decision to share it and it's their decision how they interact with it and that does not involve women whatsoever. When a woman does it, especially if you look at 4chan, it's tits or get the fuck out. So it's I'm not going to um, talk with you on a personal or a human level um, you can just fuck off and I'm going to remind you that you're only here as a sexual object or you can fuck off. Mm, you're a body part. Yeah. And so then that forces women into assuming a relatively um, anonymous or default character setting that 4chan accepts, which is the white male. Now, that in itself has a whole intersection of fucking problems because they don't want to talk about race mm. and they don't want to talk about gender. Mm. What do they want to talk about? Themselves. And, you know, being fucking dick lord, edge lord twats, talking about Harambe. Um, so, seriously, everyone can go and get fucked on that. I'm so <laughs> fucking over that. Um, but anyway, so that is, like, the main gist of when it comes to how does the online space respond to women when they're putting out their own images. Add to that, for me, there's another intersection, which is when I'm a mother... I'm suddenly reverted back into a sexless cat category. Mm. So, and, and this is the thing that happens with mothers. You're either completely sexless because, oh, no, no, you've performed society's function. We don't need to even pretend that you like sex anymore. See ya. And let's just think about the implications of pretending that women aren't interested in sex um, but still manage to have it. Um, and then the second is um, sometimes we'll go the other side and we'll have them as craven, sex-crazed, you know, stifler's mums types (laughs) who are apparently just, you know, gone crazy because of a lack of man in their life. Mm. And so once again, it comes to that. Um, And so I enjoy posting selfies. I enjoy discussing all of that sort of thing on a very um, open and sometimes visceral level. Because, A, it interests me, so fuck everyone else. Um, And, B, I think I can tie it to other social issues that, you know, I think has meaning. And, And, C, I'm just sick of, you know, seeing the conversation is normally when we talk about selfies. Again, it comes back to this ageism kind of thing. When a lot of women talk about the, you know, the radical nature of selfies, they're normally 24, white, 
and under size 12. Mm. That ain't radical. It's the free the nipple. Yeah, you know, again. yeah, it's that feminine. It's that, and you know, and you know, with the man behind it all, where's the radical nature of that? You show me a 70 year old woman with her fucking tits out, then I will get excited. Right now, I'm a, um, I'm, you know, I think I'm technically obese. I don't know. Um, woman, I'm over 40. Yeah, I'm white. I'm passable looking. Um, I'm going to take a fucking selfie. Go fuck yourself. I look great. And I'm accepting that. That's the thing that actually scares them the most, that you're, you're confident. Mm. It's not that you're presenting yourself as a sexualized object. It's the fact that it's making them feel uncomfortable because you are confident, because it's not about their acceptance. You presenting yourself says... I don't know if I'd even want you anyway, but I look good, so fucking feasted on it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversations about that, uh, naked selfies this year, mm. um, and a lot of it's focused on young women and mm. on, um, you know, the kind of teenage boys sharing them around and kind of um, using them as wank bank kind yeah. of um, fodder. And... I find the responses to that have been really interesting and you've written about this a bit as well, which is that so often um, parents and teachers and authorities, they just want to say, don't do it, just don't do it. And yeah. the answer is, it's like abstinence for sex. It's like, girls, you can't, just can't take these photos. Um, and I think that that's understandable as a kind of instinctive response, mm. but I really want to talk about why that's not um, an adequate solution why that's not a solution and so, yeah. yeah it's well-meaning but it's not actually the answer yeah and I I've done a bit of work in this area with teens so I was helping this group of kids who were making um, a short film about sexting and their whole concept behind it was for the woman she needed to know that it was going to ruin her entire life right to the point when she was elderly <sighs> you know and you know it was very hard to try and discuss this issue with them because their politics weren't you know, and sometimes you come across this, you know, not everyone, um, you know, I was in an outer suburban area, not everyone's going to have your light, as they call it, the latte belt sensibility. <laughs> and I remember saying to one of the girls, I said, but imagine if you swapped it around. Imagine if it wasn't the fault of the woman for sharing, for taking a photo, it was the fault of the guy for sharing the photo around with everyone. Because that's really where the criminality is. That's the crime. What would you do if you all turned around and shamed him? And and what she said absolutely flattened me. She said, oh, they'd just turn around and hit us. Oh, jeez. And it was just like, that stayed with me for ages. So fucking depressing. Um, so there is that thing. What the other, and you combine that with the other aspect, which is a lot of what teens tell me is that guys aren't actually doing this for sexual pleasure. This is essentially power-based. Um, and this is a power reinforcer. They are collecting women's photos like they're fucking Pokemon. Mm. It's not about their attraction. It's about their entitlement. And it's about their objectification of women um, who they can then seem, you know, feel free to shame or whatever in you know equal measure. Um, so from my perspective, I'm incredibly defiant about this and about reversing that behaviour. So as an older person, I can talk about my experience and what I would do. Um, I do get phone calls from time to time on how to help specific young women who are going through that. And you, you know, normally can connect them with services um, of people to advocate on their behalf or help them. 
because that's really, really important. I think I have actually, I have been criticised in the past for writing about it as if I'm, you know, trying to present myself as young. And it's like, no, it's not about the youth. You're fucking missing the point. It's systemic. This (laughs) is, this is, see, like, this is the thing. So trauma and the teens and trauma are really impactful. This is when girls will first experience relationship and Mm. sexual violence in many, many respects. This is when they start to see really overt sexism in their social groups and in their schoolroom. Um, So this is men taking their fledgling steps to be misogynistic. And so we need to step in on it quickly And we need to actually not only just fight it from a legislative level, but also from a social level. And so, look, with my daughter, I said the same thing at first. I was like, no, just look, if a guy ever wants to see a photo of you naked, just no. Um, Just don't do it. Just don't do it until you're in your 20s, then it's fine. Um, I do it all the time. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and I'm very open about my sex life with her. Um, But I think that... I think I was I was in Tasmania and I realised that I was freaking out about her becoming a teenager because I was freaking out about not being able to protect her from the trauma. And there was part of me... That initial instinct is you just want to put them in a dome and protect them. But in the end, what I ended up doing was just like, do what the fuck you want, but just remember, I'm going to be by your side. I'm going to fight for you like fury. And we have resources you are never helpless do Mm. not let anyone ever make you feel helpless because that is not the case so i make her informed and if i can make her informed i can make her a personal advocate and then a community advocate a beautiful segue into our third uh shout out segment where we get the guests to talk about what they kind of enjoy doing what they most recommend for listeners to go out and pursue we wanted to kind of ask you to do a shout out to something that you enjoy doing with your daughter that feeds in and intersects with like your political views yeah um but also just what brings you guys joy together um we're as highbrow cultured people um naturally we're all about reality tv shows um and so for us at the moment what's really been making us happy has been rupaul's drag race at the uh, moment or for how long um years to yeah. <laughs> phase yeah <laughs> And pleasure and enjoyment probably doesn't sell exactly how obsessed and how much you guys love it. We, we yeah, we could just like, hey, this week let's just go through season three again. But uh, look, you know, there's um, there are questions with RuPaul, like Cat Black has really critiqued its use of blackness, um, and there are sometimes um, criticisms that it's you know been transphobic, and it hasn't been the most aware. It's trying to be responsive though. Um, but for us, there's a huge amount of still really useful shit to take in there. Bullying, acceptance, finding, you know, or understanding that gender actually is truly fluid. Um, understanding that family isn't always biological. It's how you create it. And so there's this beautiful understanding of acceptance there. And it's all mixed up with this degenerate mischievous humour that's assertive. These people will not take shit. And that's another really great thing for her to say. Um, And so we just love it. And the cultural references are amazing. They look amazing. My child is growing up learning how to be a nice person, still enjoy being a bitch, 
it's not delivered in a po-faced way and she can also watch something that's flawed and begin to accept popular culture is flawed mm. and you can still take parts of it and enjoy it right yeah, like i think exactly. that's a really big thing so as kind of a room of people who engage with culture on more of a critical level um I, as a, like a TV critic and a film critic and a book critic, people are like, oh, doesn't that ruin things for you? I'm like, no, you can still enjoy them. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm a reality TV nut as well. Mm. Yeah. Amy and I watch some of the trashiest stuff. We send each other YouTube clips. Yeah. Like, and we talk about the flawed elements of it, but that's almost part of the pleasure. It's yeah. like breaking it down. But also I can just lay in bed and watch something that people are like, man, this isn't great. I'm like, yeah, I get that, but yeah. I love it. Yeah, well, look, I'm, the other thing I'm really loving at the moment is, I've always loved this too, is a tattoo reality show called Ink Master. And the latest season has been amazing because the top performers have all been women. And not only are they women, they're fucking kick-ass women. <laughs> they do not have fucks to give. <laughs> I love them. And it's been this really great um, entry point for people who are watching it to then discuss feminism. And that's a really amazing thing about popular culture. You know, yeah, they can be as flawed as fuck, but it's about how you then wield it. How do you then... Are you going to go an absolutionist, you know, puritanical role? It's like, no, never of these things, never. I'm not watching this. I can't watch this. I can't watch that. They did that one thing one time. Fuck that. That's now problematic. I understand. But if you're not going to engage with shit... You're not going to change shit. And you'll have nothing left to watch except Seventh Heaven. <laughs> well, see, that's deeply problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Um, but, you know, actually, I, I would never let Aurora watch that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, basically. If you want, like, my favourite quote is Jello Biafra. Don't hate the media. Become the media. And that that is everything. It's if you don't like something, get involved discuss it don't shut it fucking down because you're never gonna fucking shut it down amy you're offering me the perfect segues i don't even have to like give you a little <laughs> signal or whatever no listen to me no listen to me no listen to me frontier psychiatry i give myself very good advice but i very seldom follow it you don't need to be helped any longer. You've always had the power to go back to Kansas. Frontier Psychiatry. Arrogant Aunts segment where we pretend to answer your questions with authority we feel like we don't have. It's basically an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. Mm. Uh, I, our question is kind of from a group of anonymous people. I feel like we're, we're getting this question a lot. We're asking each other a lot. Um... I'm seeing a lot of people post about it online. I'm talking about it personally with a lot of people. So it's like based on the the recent US election with Trump becoming the president-elect, uh, it feels like it's the apocalypse, World War III. Um, obviously, we're concerned about it, what it means for women and minorities and people on the fringes, the LGBTIQ community, people of colour, specifically women of colour. But here in Australia, obviously, it will impact our way of life we're part of the western world we follow america we watch watch a lot of the pop culture mm. and we consume a lot but but what is it that we can do here that makes us feel like we're not insignificant and we can respond and make sure that 
we're not just yelling out into our leftist kind of echo chamber, which we were talking about a little bit. Um, what can we do to to help institute any change? Um, firstly, leftist writers need to smarten the fuck up, and I don't mean give us another piece of satire. Um, I think we need to actually understand that political satire is great. It's not the base of the journalism pyramid, though. Um, it, If you're doing satire, you are talking to a converted audience. You're preaching from you know the same choir book, but you're not going to get anyone new to the congregation if you've just called them an idiot. Um, that's not how you convert people. I'm not saying you need to say, hey, I understand your racism. That's not it. That's not um, a conversion technique either. It's about finding a different way to challenge them. And mockery isn't it. Mockery only serves to make the left feel happy and satisfied with their decision and then shocked when their worldviews aren't validated in elections or things like that. So... um, media actually has a gigantic role to play and I'm part of that as well so for my part I'm I've been trying to research different right ways to write op-ed so I can actually take on less of a echo chamber validation to I want to actually discuss this I want to do this with nuance but I want to do it really clearly um, so I'm trying to do that more and I hope other people do that more I know that Jason Wilson from The Guardian for example he's been really good at trying to um, report on things with an empathy that is not often seen. Um, And the Columbia uh, Journalism Review has come out with um, a really great series of, you know, ideas on how the media needs to actually improve themselves. But the other thing is, and this is like, you know, obviously get active, step in when you need to, be an ally wherever you can, elevate people. It's not about you, it's about the community. Very, very important. This is a slightly left-of-field one. We need a big funding revival for left-wing progressive think tanks. And we need to actually get them to the point where they are incredibly influential and they are pumping out work and they are changing the philosophy and the worldview that we all share. Because this is not happening and this is something that the right does extremely well, both in, um, in Australia and in the US. We need that to happen more. But we also need, you know, politicians to actually stand up and, you know, say something. Well, yeah, well, what can we do, do you think? Like, Ronnie, do you, <coughs> what are your thoughts on this? Because I know that you and I have discussed yeah, it and talked about it. How, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were talking about um, just for self-care even, like getting up in the morning and trying not to look at social media and Facebook straight away, obviously being engaged with the news across a, a wide mm. range of sources, like not just kind of our small little echo chamber, but various sources is really important but maybe don't do it as soon as you wake up I know mm. that I'm guilty of doing that and it completely changes my mood for the yeah. day and it depending on what day it is but the majority of the time I will go from feeling like I want to be engaged and interested to just downright upset and feeling like I'm helpless like what what are you thinking I mean I, I don't think that I have any um, answers that you know are going to work for everybody and I don't even know if they're working for me right now but um, certainly like what Amy's saying about satire really hits home because I think a lot of the kind of turning Trump into a joke and turning him into a punchline um, meant that people just didn't expect that this would happen and there were no like strategies in place for what would you know what would come next if Trump assumed the presidency and now it's like this kind of scramble but you know I also think that it's okay to um, you know we're only less than a week 
out from it being announced and I think that it's okay to have like a period of like grief and anger and sadness and just like you know as you say like cut yourself off from stuff for as long as you need to um so that when you are ready to come back into it you can kind of apply yourself to go okay well I'm gonna read these sources I'm gonna knowledge up so that then I can have those conversations with people and be and spread I that guess, around yeah and be in a position within yourself where you're not so angry that you just immediately want to mock because obviously that is an instinct right it's yeah. like you're so different from me why would you do this and then you go to kind of degrade people which is awful but it is also quite human but I think that yeah taking that time and really engaging I also think that it is important for us after we have taken that time to look at home and what like you were saying politicians Mm. need to stand up and I think here we're at a really kind of difficult moment in our own political climate and obviously you can think about more than one thing at once I think that that is also something that happens people kind of make it into a black and white scenario but you can be concerned with what's happening in America and what's happening at home and I think kind of getting involved in those different kind of communities writing letters to your your local politicians um might seem frivolous but if more of us did it then maybe more change would be instituted i'm a huge fan of calling instead of writing oh yeah um if you're writing so this is what i heard from a former chief of staff if you're writing and you really want it to make an impact ask them specific questions that they have to research because that's going to then take up their time and it's going to get more notice but um, calling their home, their like their seat offices, um, is really really helpful. And also, if you can then, a, a lot of groups are now doing great with online mobilisation, and sharing information. And so, if you've got a group of people bombarding the um, the electorate office, and then the federal office or what have you, that actually makes a huge difference as well because it's just volume and it's momentum. Yeah, I think that that's something that we definitely champion and encourage and possibly once we're through our little grieving period, we can look at it a bit more closely and get you back in and and talk about that a bit more because this has been excellent. Thank you so much, Amy. It's a horrible time. We're all feeling a bit down, but you've just like lifted my spirits with your acerbic humour and your intellect. Love And your RuPaul. And your RuPaul. (laughs) Now you can sashay away. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sisteria is created by women for women, but also anyone who wants to listen. For links to everything we've discussed and to get in touch, check out our website, sisteriapodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Sisteriapod. Sisteria is produced by me, Izzy roberts and co-presented by the Rereaders and the Melbourne Library Service, supported by Creative Victoria. Our incredible theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and is available on her new record, Spacings. Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to the elders of the land this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon. Sisteria.